Well, um, the church gathered together is a signpost that there is in fact a kingdom that has broken into the world, and that's, that's good. And so we have been looking at the story of the church, the, the history of our witness, if you will. We do have roots as the church, as roots are told in the story of Acts, a New Testament book written by Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and he has stories about the church, about the history of our witness, and he gives a picture of what it was like for the first followers of Jesus, the first Christians, and how it grew from this persecuted Jewish minority sect to a multicultural movement in just a few decades. And so Acts is telling us what happened. Uh, We looked last week at the first missions trip, if you will, the first kind of international move to share the gospel across uh, national and cultural and ethnic lines uh, as the church of Antioch sends Barnabas and Paul. So a church in Syria is sending people into Asia Minor or Galatia to share the gospel. And so we looked at that story, and we saw that God led Paul and Barnabas into some tough situations, into some challenging contexts, that, that there was a price to obedience to God's mission. And when we stop and think about uh, anything that's costly, uh, there is always something that's valuable on the other end of it. Right? We pay the price of time for the sake of relationship. We pay the price of conflict and forgiveness for the sake of reconciliation. We pay the price of insurance for the sake of not having to pay more than a deductible later. Right? So we, there is a reward that seems worth it for a price. And so the reality is that no one assumes a cost without a reward or a desired outcome. Right? So... My dryer broke last night. I'm anticipating the outcome of a working dryer, and there's going to be a cost in between, right? Like, that's just how it goes. Uh, Paul risks his life, actually. He assumes the cost of his whole life, his whole person, for the sake of God's mission to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus. And so uh, we have a record of Paul's articulation of this attitude as he says things in Philippians 1 like to live is Christ and to die is gain is how he articulates this attitude or in Galatians when he says it's no longer I who live it's it's Christ who lives in me he's surrendered all he knows of himself to all he knows of Jesus and so when we look at someone like the apostle Paul And the story we saw last week in Acts 13 and 14, it's easy to kind of see, wow, he laid it all out for the gospel. He laid it all on the line and and, and just stop there and think, that's just really inspiring. But I want to go further this morning and go back into chapter 14 and ask, for what? Like, for what outcome? For what reward? Um, For the sake of what did he live such a costly obedience? Um, And so... I want to ask, what was the goal? What was he laboring for? Uh, We know that he was motivated by the love of Christ. He tells us that much in his letters. But what was the outcome that he and Barnabas were actually after? So what I want to do today is I want to go back into the very end, a couple of verses in uh, Acts chapter 14, and take a look at four outcomes, if you will, of Paul's mission of Paul's participation, if you will, in God's mission to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus. Four realities that make the costliness of the mission worth it for Paul. Uh, 
as well as give a financial update as well for our congregation. Once a year, all Colossae congregations after our elder retreat just come back and share a financial update. And, uh, and so this year, this is our first time doing that, and I want to root that in the reality of our story. So uh, four realities or outcomes, if you will, that the gospel um, uh, produces that are worthy of sacrifice, if you will, in Paul's story and in ours, uh, worthy of our effort, worthy of our energy, worthy of our giving ourselves, and then they fill out the question, why or so what, or what are we laboring for? Does this sound... Makes sense. You with me? Okay. Let's take a look at the text this morning. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. It's up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, Acts chapter 14, verse 21. When they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel, the good news about Jesus uh, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the heart of this passage revolves around the preaching of the gospel. Everything that's happening in Paul and Barnabas, the mission they're participating in, is about Jesus. Everything is about the news about Jesus for them. He's central. Uh, They're not exporting a a religious practice. They're actually just bearing witness to the reality of a person. And that's what's central to them. And so if there's one thing that drives Paul, it's God's self-giving love through Jesus, the announcement about his self-giving love, the good news. And so that good news goes into the world and it bears fruit and it produces a result and, and something that we see that Paul is pursuing. Um, they weren't content to simply preach a message. They were burdened to go- cultivate a response to it and to, to cultivate that gospel message to uh, take root. So they labored for a kind of gospel rootedness in every context that they went. And just to give you some context, here's the geography of the region. They had actually left Syria and gone up into this area in Galatia, up to Antioch and down. And and so they end at Derbe, and that's where we pick up. They had preached the gospel in that city. If you want to go home to Antioch, back to Syria, what's the quickest way there? To turn around or to keep going? To keep going, right? So if you were wanting to be efficient, you would just shoot straight through, hit your home city, catch a burger at your mom's house, and then, or shawarma, or I don't know, and then you'd like land back in Syria. It'd be awesome. So that would be the most efficient way. And so what's interesting to me is they uh, actually ditched the most expedient thing and in, f- in fact, they, they opt for the most effective thing, which is to go back the way they came. Uh, it's because what they're about is relational. And so they go back for the sake of relationship and walk through each city, strengthening the people that have responded to the gospel already in their trip. And, and so there is this contrast between the most efficient way and the most effective way to return home. Efficiency matters depending on your aim, Right? Uh, we're very concerned in America about efficiency, um, but when you look at gospel realities, uh, it's far more relational, far more qualitative, 
and time-consuming. And if the aim of gospel ministry is just to dip, uh, impart information and inspire people, just listening to a podcast would be far more efficient than actually like all the fuss of setting up a church. If the aim even is just to be known, like just hang out with your friends who already know you instead of be stretched to love people different than you. Uh, or if the aim is to only feed the poor, why invest energy in beauty or truth, right? Or if the aim is just outreach, why care for the saints? And so it's this whole gospel and this whole person and whole world kind of reality. And so efficiency in time is actually almost always at odds with effectiveness in God's mission. And so there are certainly things we want to be efficient at. We want to be efficient at setting up pipe and drape here and making coffee. But we want to be effective in loving one another and sharing the gospel with our world. And so anytime efficiency becomes the aim over gospel effectiveness, we have a problem. Because the aim's always relational, because the gospel's relational. It's God's self-giving love to humanity. It's a relationship that's being engaged. And so with that in mind, I want to talk about what are the, the outcomes of this slow path home, this effective, maybe inefficient, but effective focus on the ministry of the gospel in each one of these places. Uh, There are four words that capture what I think is happening in this text that we'll just walk through. The first word is local, Uh, that God's mission actually localizes communities to be a faithful presence. And I'm struck by the naming of location. So they preached the gospel in the city, and then they went back through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. The pathway for the mission of God that we see in Paul and Barnabas always emphasizes place. They preached the gospel and made many disciples, it says, uh, and, and then Luke lists the places where this happens. And so they they went through these cities strengthening and encouraging. You could easily say that, yeah, this is all before the internet and modern travel, and they had to operate this way. Um, that place is somehow less important now. In fact, I'm reading this book by David Brooks. It's really interesting about suburban and exurban culture. And anyways, he says that modern people don't see where they live as a destination. It's just a dot on a map, right? That that all places are more and more like every place, um, which is interesting. And that's a whole nother talk. But the reality is that place has always mattered in God's economy. Place always matters because place is where there's concrete realities. There's concrete people, concrete businesses, concrete schools. There's real people. And uh, there's jobs and homes and schools and neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff when you think about a place. And the more humans inhabit a digital space, the less attuned we tend to be to physical space. And, and I think... That if we follow Jesus, it will naturally affect how we engage our place, where we shop, how we interact at the gas pump, in schools, and so on and so forth. And if it doesn't shape how we engage our place, then we've misunderstood Jesus' summons to enter a kingdom, a domain, a sphere of rule that's breaking into the present. If we believe he is the king, then we will represent his reign and his rule and his governance in places. And so our church, Colossae Church, has always been committed to place. 
uh, as an axiom that we kind of live by, and it's simple, but I think profound, and that is that we want to be who we are, where we are as a people. And the, the story of Colossae is really a, a guy moved up from California and started in a living room, but then people were driving from Hillsborough and Sherwood and Beaverton and other places and Tigard. And, and so pretty soon there were communities in those cities and in those places, but there are each different school districts and there's different actual cities and there's different places with different culture. And before long, the, the commitment to multiply congregations resulted in being who we are, where we are as congregations, not just community groups around the city. And so that, that commitment to be who we are, where we are, has moved us outward to concentrate on localizing congregations. And one of the ways we do that is to focus on a school district because that is a representation of a place. And it's easy to commute to a church for a program or for a personality, and there's seasons, of course, where that may, in fact, be appropriate, and I'm not attacking it. But what I want to say is that we are actually driven by a conviction to be rooted in place, in a place that helps us focus concretely on loving our neighbor and showing and sharing the gospel where we are. Because my contention is that the less tied we are to place, the less accountable we actually end up living. Because we abstract people and uh, we are not as accountable to actually showing and sharing the gospel. And so we're committed to be who we are, where we are. That's the first reality or outcome of the gospel going out. It localizes and it affects place. The second word is learners. Um, That uh, the, God's mission summons people to be learners of Jesus and his way. Uh, Luke tells us that after they had preached the good news, they made many disciples. Disciple is just an, a word that literally means learner. It's a student, an apprentice. Um, when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, he is actually, the, just in Greek, it says, learn the nations. Like, go, go help people learn. And the two other times that that disciple is used as a verb in Matthew are about learning Jesus and learning the kingdom. And so the content and the focus of what we are to learn is a person and his reign and his rule, Jesus and his kingdom. And so there's this constant search for instant results or novelty in our culture. And whatever is new or flashy kind of gets the attention and sought after, and then in a moment... As soon as it shows up, it's, it's vanished. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus first began his public ministry, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You can read about this account in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. These are both accounts of the temptation of Jesus. And uh, as he goes out and is tempted by the devil, it says that the devil targeted each one of his temptations around Jesus' messianic identity. That because Jesus is the Messiah, the temptation was to live into that identity in an inappropriate way. Uh, and, and so the temptation was, why don't you turn a bunch of stones into rocks? If you met anybody, or sorry, stones into, wow. <laughs> yeah. You were, you were just going to let me go, weren't you? Yeah, all right. Uh, Turn a bunch of stones into bread. Sorry, I'm like struggling with a cold, and I'm anyway. Sure, blame it on my cold. All right. Anyway, he says, uh, turn a bunch of stones into into bread. Right? Like if you knew anybody who could generate food 
out of rocks, that'd create a crowd, wouldn't it? Uh, Or go to the highest place of the temple and jump off, right? And angels will catch you, right? That's a spectacle is what that is. That is flashy. And, And it's interesting to me, you know, that as Jesus is tempted in each one of these situations, not only does he obey, thank God, because we don't when we're tempted, and so he obeys perfectly for us, uh, and, and, and he actually uh, also, uh, I think, shows us something about what he's really after. Um, it says that uh, when he was tempted, he, he pushed back, and he pushed back with the word of God. Um, and so he was tempted to do things that would have produced a crowd. It would have produced a, a spectacle. And uh, in the most public way possible. I was reading this book by Mark Sayers. He's this Australian writer, and he says this. In, instantaneously, if, if Jesus would have followed through and done what the devil was asking him to do, instantaneously, a crowd would um, have gathered hailing the arrival of a messianic king. There would be no traipsing through a Judean countryside, no endless sermons, no never-ending requests for healing, no opposition, no threats of blasphemy, no debates with scholars. In a flash, uh, the instant platform of a flash mob. In the space of seconds, he would have adulation and followers. He would have a crowd. But it, it's perhaps one of the most unnoticed things in the world of the American church, that Jesus seems completely disinterested in a crowd. In fact, when he has one, he says stuff like, eat my flesh and drink my blood, cutting a crowd down to 12. <laughs> so do you want to leave too? Right? That's what he says. Sayers goes on and he says, Jesus did not need to win public opinion. He needed disciples, ones who had faith and devotion. He says, Jesus' plan to redeem the world was founded on discipling, trusting, and handing over his ministry to a small group of trusted followers and friends. One of whom, by the way, betrayed him. Actually, they all did. Jesus invested in the few to change the many. He went deep to go wide. And so, what's the aimed for outcome as we partner with God in his mission? to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus. It's to see a community of learners formed. Right? Uh, disciples who take Jesus at his word and, and order life accordingly, who simply surrender what they know of themselves to what they know of him. Now, here's the deal with learners, and we found this trick with our kids and their homework. Um, uh, they would get super frustrated. There'd be this age between, oh, I don't know, the first few grades, right, where it's like all of a sudden... They're working on their homework, and then they get really angry. I don't know if you've had this happen with your kids. Because they don't know it. Right? They, they, they assume that their identity isn't student, it's master. Right? And as soon as they don't have it, they're really ticked. Right? I can't do it, I don't know. Oh, have you tried? Have you asked a question? Right? All that kind of stuff. And so we try to help our kids go, yeah, you're not supposed to know. So you're actually just getting really emotionally worked up because you think that you should know and that you should have arrived. You're actually a student, not a teacher. And so here's this. Learners, disciples, are not people who have arrived. Uh, To be a learner implies imperfection. To be a learner means that, uh, that you actually need help right? That you have something to learn. Some of you are here and you're just defeated. 
You're here and you're coming to church and that's already a stretch because it reminds you of the ways that you haven't measured up and you've already messed up this week, right? And I understand that, right? So instead of seeing yourself as a learner, you might see yourself as a dropout on the edge looking at a learner or learning community. But I want to encourage you that to be a good learner requires humility enough to see that you need a master. That's actually the only prerequisite to be a learner. Say, I'm actually imperfect, and I need a master to show me life. Uh, I need uh, someone to learn from. That's what it takes to be a learner. It's actually just acknowledgement of need. And so when you grasp the message of Jesus, that he calls you to be his learner after his way and after him, it assumes two things. One, our imperfection, that we actually need Jesus to teach us how to live. And so that, that, that's a low bar of entrance into the school of learning from Jesus, isn't it? To, to just to say, I'm not perfect, and I actually need to learn how to live. That, that's a low bar, okay? And, and so you can exclude yourself from that school by arrogance and pride to say, I got it, I should be independent, right? That's the only way you exclude yourself from Jesus' school, right? But to acknowledge need, that's the prerequisite. And then the second thing that that implies in being a learner is direction, right? So one, I need Jesus to teach me how to live. Direction is I'm trusting Jesus to be my life. I'm trusting Jesus to direct my life. Uh, And so it's not really about learning principles as much as it's learning a person who is present by his spirit and leaves behind a pattern to follow. And so this is part of being who we are. So we talked about being where we are, we're in Beaverton, but who we are is learners and those who are loved and being led by Jesus, becoming more like him because we're apprenticed to him. It meant for Paul and Barnabas strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. It's not about ease or comfort, but about the reality of our participation in Christ's life. And to sustain that kind of church, you need the third thing, which is leaders. And so uh, God's mission forms leaders who serve. It says that um, as they visited these cities, they uh, appointed elders for them in every church. Um, It's a way of describing someone who is an overseer, who is bearing the responsibility to care for the church, to serve the church and protect It's doctrine and mission. And so how do you find a leader? Do you look for someone impressive who calls lots of attention to themselves? Maybe in some spheres. But in the world of Jesus' economy, we look for those who serve, who lead by presence and don't need to lead by position. And it's the presence that's non-anxious and lifts up others around them. And so we're looking for leaders who follow the pattern of Jesus' leadership, which is self-giving love. And so they demonstrate a trustworthy character and a character worth imitating. And so this is one of my prayers in this season as we're in our sixth month as a congregation that God would raise up elders and ministry leaders, deacons, who would serve the body in practical ways and shepherd and care for the body uh, and do that alongside me right? uh, and you. So pray with me for that and for discernment. And uh, I, we currently have a board of directors that I get to report to who are elders from other congregations of Colossae. 
and they help me and support, but we want to be local. And so we're praying that God would raise up leaders over time, healthy leaders who are good learners, who are able to bear the burden of more than their own pain, but to bear the pain of the rest of the congregation. A good leader is somebody who understands it's not a privilege, but an opportunity to, uh, uh, well, it is a privilege to lead, but it is not about privilege. It's actually about bearing pain. Who wants to sign up for that, right? Okay. So uh, the kind of a person that Paul, the kind of pain, I'm sorry, that Paul describes in his letter to the Galatians, the same cluster of churches, when he says this, that he is in the pains of childbirth. By the way, that's not a phrase I feel comfortable uttering uh, because I'm pretty sure my wife will give me an evil eye and maybe a punch to the arm. Like, yeah, I know you don't know what that is, right? But Paul says it, and he says, I, I'm in that kind of labor pains for what? Until Christ is formed in you. So we are looking for leaders who will labor for Christ to be formed in this community, in the life of the church. But guess what? That's not something we can do on our own steam uh, and in our own strength. And so here's the last reality, Um, the word reliance, that God's mission requires trust and dependence. It requires his people to rely on him. Luke tells us that as they went about making learners in these locations and establishing leaders, they also did this with prayer and fasting, and they committed them to the Lord whom they believed. So how did Paul and Barnabas leave these churches? How do you leave this little church in Galatia where you know they're in hostile territory, they're being opposed and their own lives have been threatened, and they know so little, like they don't even have a Bible app, right? Like there's, they're just, they don't know. They have all this religious and cultural baggage, right? All these leaders are freshly minted. Um, well, how did they do that? I think it's that they trusted God with the church, right? And so they were able to leave without controlling in fear and anxiety, but they blessed and committed and left in trust to say, this is God's church. His spirit's here. He's going to lead it. He's the head of the church. And so they express and show their trust by praying and fasting and committing. They, They entrust these communities to the care of God. And when we began as a congregation, we began just simply with prayer. Three gatherings in the library in Beaverton just to say, we're going to pray. We're just going to pray because we're depending on God. We're believing the gospel. We're repenting of our idolatry and we're, we're yearning for the kingdom. And we're just going to do that and express that in prayer. And, and every week we have prayer available in the back of the room to say, come, just pray. Pray with us. Pray, be prayed for. Enter a space of prayer. And so I want to encourage us as a body to live in reliance on God uh, and encourage you to make a regular habit of prayer in your life, to get alone with God, to be quiet and listen, to set aside time to intercede for those in the body and those outside. And we may have seasons of fasting together where we deny ourselves so that we can heighten our own understanding of our trust and dependence and come before the Lord in that way. Because guess what? We're dependent. We're not independent. We're we're currently asking God for the things that we've just looked at today in Acts 14. We're at trusting God to be a, help us be a faithful presence in this location, 
to be learners who are faith-filled people who learn Jesus. And for leaders, those who will faithfully guard and serve. And we rely on God, not a personality or a strategy, but on God. And this is, this is actually in every area, including finances. And so when we say we trust God, um, it, it means that our financial strategy is two gray boxes on a couple of tables and an app, right? That's our financial strategy. It'll meet the need, right? Through you, through the body. And so God has been faithful and he has blessed. And I'm excited to share this with you because every year Colossae congregations gather and they give a financial report and something, um, by the way, you can know about any time during the year. We're open with all of that. Um, But for the broader purposes of just celebrating today what God has done and depending together on what we're trusting him to do as we go forward, I want to share with you how the year ended, okay? Sound good? And where we're going? Cool? All right. So um, I want to share this with you. This is really exciting. We started in uh, September, um, but the bank account started in January. Um, I accidentally gave like half a year to Tigard because I didn't know what was going on. Anyway, um, so switched it to Beaverton. Um, but here's, here's where we landed. Uh, so for 2018, uh, you generously gave $142,641.46. Um, that went into our general fund. You also gave another $1,400 that went straight to families in need at, uh, at an elementary school in the Beaverton School District. I'd never even touched a general fund. just went straight to families in need. Um, and so our expenses were $118,809.90. Right? And so that went to the initial startup costs and staffing and lease and operating expenses and things like that. So that put us in a phenomenal position because we were seated with an initial $20,000 from uh, Colossae Tigard uh, that we never had to touch because you faithfully gave and sustained the work of the ministry through this local congregation. So we were able to save an additional $23,835.56. So that puts us in a spot where we have way more than 90 days of operating costs just in the bank. If another dollar was never given, we could live for 90 days and figure out what to do. I'm not suggesting we do that. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, right? So we have tried to be very good stewards and, and conservative, and we've been able to just put money aside. You've also been giving to the next church plant, and I'll, come, I'll visit that in just a second. So we, this hasn't just been going to us. We've done some things at the high school, and we've also been able to put money into the next plant, which is really exciting. So I want to just say this. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for giving generously uh, and supporting the work of, the, of, of God through the local church and through this body and partnering in ministry financially. Thank you. I also uh, want to say that I believe God's honored by that. Like I, I believe God's honored by generosity. And we are experiencing blessings. So we get to say thank you to God, right? Because he's being honored and he's blessing. And so as we prepare for 2019, uh, the board of directors has approved a budget of $215,000 or $215,367. I don't know why I didn't round that one up. Um, That's kind of weird. 
I should probably go back and say, let's round that up by like a few bucks, right? So, because that's $3, you know? Anyway, um, that's just weird. I just noticed that for the first time when I'm talking in front of you. Like, probably round that up. Anyway, um, so one thing that is uh, helpful to know is this is actually a really conservative, right? Because we've only met for five months and this is only a little bit more, right? But we are choosing to budget conservatively because we uh, want to be prepared for what God may want to do down the road, location-wise or staffing-wise. And so we do want to add some, some part-time staff, and there are some things that uh, are, will go up. We'll continue to contribute to... Tr- uh, we can put the pie chart up. That might maybe be helpful. I don't know. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a breakdown. So there's staff and lease, operations, ministry costs, central costs, and church planting. Um, our central costs go to things like bookkeeping and HR, and there's some website, app things, whatever that go to just all Colossae congregations pull our money together for some central costs. Every congregation gives 5% of what comes in every month to the next plant. And so I want to tell you about that, too. You can just go to the next slide. Um, we want to ask you to continue to give right? generously, regularly, and cheerfully, right? to just jo- join me in giving to this work. Okay? I, and uh, it's the first thing that comes out on the 1st and the 15th. Uh, is just tithe, right? Because it's a priority of worship for me to say what I have in my bank account and what I get to do with my money isn't actually all about me and what I want. It's actually my life is oriented towards God and his kingdom. And so you know that as you give regularly and generously and cheerfully. So I want to invite you into that uh, with us as a congregation and to trust God to meet that need and to grow our faithful presence in, in this place. So there's probably more I could say if there's questions or whatever. I'm happy to answer them. But um, we are trusting God to continue this work. And I want to tell you this, that I actually believe it's worth giving ourselves to, um, to be who we are, localized, representing the reign of God, and to grow larger by staying smaller, which means we want to reach learners and develop disciples, right? and to develop and mobilize leaders who will care for the body. And you have a question. I do. Yeah. All right, that's cool. Uh, so there was a seating cost for Beaverton yeah. that came from the other congregation. Yeah, yeah. Are, are we still receiving that seed money? Nope. That that's all. Part of that seed money? Yeah, we haven't gotten any of the 5% from any other congregation since summer. Okay. So that's all gone. We've actually got, like, a bunch of money set aside for the next co- congregation. So, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. We have East Side. Have I told you about East Side? We're doing Colossae East. That's already gathering steam, meeting in a living room. We are, we're way past fire code in that living room. So um, I want to encourage you and say that you are currently helping plant East Side. Uh, and so as Colossae continues to multiply to be who we are, where we are, and grow larger by staying smaller, we're already contributing to Colossae East. And so they are able to operate out of strength because the whole is continuing to contribute. So, um, yeah, super cool. All right, so I want to say this to you. I believe it is worthy for us to give ourselves to because we are serving one who has given himself for us, right? And so that is the message that we bear witness to in our world, that, that God has blessed us. What? 
by saving us. And so we want to share that reality with the world. It's a high calling, and it's worthy of giving ourselves to because he gave himself for us. And, and so that's when we move to the tables. And I want to invite the band to come up this morning and, and, and lead us to the table to celebrate at the table the reality of God's self-giving love, that every week we culminate by celebrating the central truth of God's self-giving love at the table, and we receive the bread and the cup as a way of declaring Christ's death until he comes, is what Paul says. That it's at the table where we are reminded that God has brought us into union with himself, not by our works, but by his grace. That we get to come to the table as freeloaders, Right? That, that is important to know. Uh, we come not because of what we give. We come to the table to receive what he gives, which is his life, his grace, his spirit. And so he does that to join us to himself as his partners, that we get to partner in the mission of reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. And so we receive the bread and cup that symbolize the reality of our redemption and our reconciliation. But before we do... This week, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to invite you um, to do something in response to what Paul and Barnabas did. They went into each city, and it says that they encouraged the disciples to remain true or remain or continue in the faith, the faith, it says, like the singular faith that is unifying in each one of these locations. Uh, there are always cross-currents in our culture that tempt us away from being a faithful presence. Uh, so this morning, I want to invite us to confess out loud our common faith. To confess out loud our common unity. It's something that the church has, has remained united over for almost 200 centuries, actually. And, uh, and so... Uh, we're going to just say the creed, the Nicene Creed. It comes from about 325 AD where the church gathered and said, what is it that is our faith? What is it that we confess to be true? And so I just want to invite you to stand, and we're just going to say it out loud as a way of declaring our unity in Christ and saying this is the faith that we are remaining in as we go to the table. Um, so just go ahead and say this along with me as we declare together our, the faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, mankind, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, who was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, 
who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Lord, we are grateful for what you are doing not only to establish us as a congregation in this place, and we pray for the sake of the world that we would represent good news. We thank you for what you've done in each of our lives by calling us to you, to be reconciled, to be made new, and to anticipate life in the age to come. God, we are grateful that as we taste the bread and the cup, we we declare that we taste that age to come now in the present, in part, not in full, but in part and, and, and in reality. And we experience that reality of the age to come together in relationship through the gospel, through your spirit, and through relationship together in community. We pray we would please you in this next year. And we come to your table to be nourished in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.